So last week, my roommate from boarding school came to visit. We had lunch, and I don't see him very often because he lives in Buenos Aires right now with his wife and his son. They've got a nice little expat life there, enjoying themselves very much. And it's only about once a year I get to see him, and we very much enjoyed our time together. And so it set me in a little bit of a nostalgic mood, so I hauled out the old Hill School class of 1988 yearbook, opened it up, and the first thing I saw was actually from a classmate who I didn't like all that much, and it was a quote by the Grateful Dead. Now, what I'm about to say will probably cast me down lower in some of your sights than the fact that I am a Yankee fan. I don't like the Grateful Dead. <sighs> now, I do like American Beauty. I do like Working Men's Dead. Those are wonderful little albums of sort of country folk that really have some gorgeous stuff going on. But the 25, 30, 45 minute jams, uh-uh. I was once offered a ticket by a friend of mine in college to see the dead, and I said, I will only go with you if I can bring reading material. I said, because during that 45-minute bongo solo that comes during space, I want to have something to do. I was not invited back to a dead show ever again. This quote, this quote that was in my yearbook, it read, If all you got to live for is what you left behind, get yourself a powder charge and seal that silver mine. Now, that's actually kind of an easy sentiment for a cocky 18-year-old boy to have who's looking forward. But actually this past week, when I saw this movie that I'm preaching on today, The Answer Man, it kind of brought the meaning of that quote home to me. It's about a guy who has had one signature, huge moment, many years ago, and has been trapped by it ever since. The Answer Man is a very, very, very derivative movie. If you want to see a better version of The Answer Man... It's called As Good As It Gets, and go rent it. It owes a lot as well to a 40-year-old virgin. Comedies about dysfunctional, emotionally isolated men who through success or failure have become arrested in their development. And unfortunately, it also shares something of those films, which I like a lot more, which is that all the other characters that surround them in their orbit, other women and other men, are not anything more than one-dimensional characters that refer back to the developmental needs of the main character. Now, this is kind of sad because Answer Man, it hints potentially at being a really, really strong comedy or perhaps a really, really strong drama or a really strong tragedy. But it veers between each of these three different categories and doesn't know what it is and feels very rushed and half-finished. I do have one very kind thing to say about it. The movie did a service to Center City, Philadelphia that very few movies have ever done before which is that it makes it look like Woody Allen's Manhattan. It really captures some of the beauty of Center City. So I give it credit in this way. The movie is about a guy named Arlen Faber. He's the author of what's called Me and God, which, you know, take, let's say, um, all the great works of pop spirituality the last 20, 25 years, a purpose-driven life and the power of now and eat, pray, love, and put those all together. And you will maybe have an idea of the impact that me and God has had. His agent, who keeps telling him how popular the book is because he's turned his back on it, says, you don't realize you have 10%, 10% of the God market. It's all yours, 10% of the God market. 
It has been an absolute bestseller. It has spawned a whole cottage industry. The me and God diet, me and God for atheists, me and God for teenagers, all these things. I mean, there's some funny material in there. But one thing particularly that we see right at the end of the credits, we realize that one critic has damned him with awesome praise. It reads simply over the 20th anniversary edition of Me and God, Arlen Faber is the answer man for life's questions. And ever since, he has been hounded by people seeking answers that he purports to know. He is resentful and isolated because everywhere he goes, even in hiding, he is hounded. And so he's tried to disappear. And actually, more than anything else, this movie reminded me of one of my favorite religious satires, Life of Brian. How many of you have seen Life of Brian? All right. So a lot of you will get what I'm talking about. You know that it is a satirical gospel. It's about a Jesus-like character who is mistaken as the Messiah. And this is where I have to say, I hope I'm not angering anyone. Um, <laughs> This is where I'd have to say that the Monty Python guys, they knew their stuff. They knew a lot about ancient Near Eastern history. They knew a lot about Jewish and Roman culture. They knew a tremendous amount about first century Palestinian Judaism. And it really shows in this movie. But it is in this particular way that Life of Brian reminds me of the answer man. The life of Brian, in very funny ways, are all about the perils of thoughtlessly or blindly following faith or a leader without any thought. At one point, if you remember, Brian throws off his sandals and his legion of followers all do too. Because if he threw off his sandals, this must be a declaration from God that throwing off your sandals is a holy commandment. And then there is the wonderful, which I'll read you verbatim, think for yourself scene. Brian who, like the answer man, like Arlen Faber, is being hounded for answers to life's deepest questions. And finally, completely irate, he turns to the crowd that has been following his every shoeless step. And he says, please, 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 listen. I've got one or two things to say. And the crowd responds, yes, tell us both of them. Brian says, look. You've got it all wrong. You don't need to follow me. You don't need to follow anybody. You've got to think for yourselves. You're all individuals, the crowd. Yes, we're all individuals. Brian, you're all different. The crowd, yes, we are all different. I will consider that an applause line. Now, Thinking for ourselves, thinking with each other, is a wonderful part of this tradition that gathers us. And thinking for ourselves is only anti-religious if we consider thought itself to be anti-religious. So Life of Brian is not, one of the reasons I love it, not an anti-religious movie. It is a sacrilegious movie, however. But every great religious teacher who has ever been has been accused of sacrilege. Think about it. Every great religious teacher who has ever been has understood the common understanding of what is sacred and said, no, this is too narrow. And I come, this new movement comes to expand the definition of what is sacred. And so they are engaged in sacrilege. But without sacrilege, we would not be sitting here. 
without the expansion of what is holy to include our kind of community, we would not be here today. These new ways of perception, these new invitations to see the world not by rote, but with fresh eyes and open senses. This is at the heart of all creative spirituality, such as when Thoreau said that it was only when he quit understanding something that he could actually see it for the first time. Is when he only could say, I no longer understand it, that he actually could behold what was before him. The movie only hints at this insight, that there is no prefabricated wisdom worth having. Seeing by rote is a way to deaden our senses, our sensibility, and finally our spirits. What is true cannot be packaged and repackaged and told. It has to be lived if it's going to make any difference in our lives. And also, and this is the tragic part of the movie that was somewhat moving, If we are not prepared, even before we have our victories, for moving beyond our victories, then we are setting ourselves up for failure. It's what all the characters in the movie struggle with at a certain level. All of them are living a truth that is too small. A too small truth. This is a familiar story. Think of perhaps the heralded high school athletes or the homecoming king or prom queen who thinks that all they have is what is in their rear view mirror, who is thinking that the best of life is found in nostalgia. This is a kind of emotional dogma about attaching ourselves to the time that was past and saying that time past is the only good time there was or always a better time than the time here now. And because of that, life is always, always, always receding somewhere in back of us. The author Arlen Faber is literally trapped by his past glory, and he resents it, and he lives because of this as a recluse, and he absolutely despises, absolutely despises the people who come to see him who are asking him for answers, and I'll show you a little clip of that right here, right now. So this is Arlen Faber who has written the most beloved work of popular spirituality, inviting people into, from what we can glean through the movie, a very expansive, very universalist understanding of God, invited a whole generation of people into a deeper perception of divine love, and he lives as a hypocrite, as we see in this scene. He writes one thing, and yet he offers the world another. He is a content provider without presence of his own character. It brought to mind for me a couple of years back, about almost three years ago now, when I was at a local seekers, a local spiritual seekers expo, and Wellsprings had a booth there, and we were to the left of us and to the right of us, uh, next to a whole bunch of people who were selling certain kinds of spiritual wares, sometimes legit, sometimes verging on snake oil, to be honest with you. And there was one guy who... I don't want to be mean, but as I could see it, he was selling some kind of foot and shoe inserts that were supposed to bring you realignment in your spirit. It wasn't just about posture. And I, I know from someone who's struggled from time to time that when your back goes out, have back problems every once in a while, it really does put you out of alignment. But the 
grandness, <laughs> the greatness of the promises that this guy was offering, well, it made me a little bit skeptical, to be honest with you. And with his potential clients, with his potential patrons, it was all sweetness and light. All great promises of peace and realignment found again after living out of balance for many years. But then, during a lull at one point, his credit card machine went out. And I heard the phone call that he made to his credit card vendor. Now, I can't repeat all of it because this is a PG-13 message this morning. I try to alert you beforehand when I'm going to do one of the R-rated ones. But let me suffice it to say that the piece that he was selling was something that he did not own himself. F you, you SO, on and on and on. If you don't do this, I'm going to sue you. I mean, bulging neck muscles, rage that he couldn't get his card to operate. Now, I understand his livelihood depended upon it, but this is a man who was offering to the world the promise of realignment. And his own soul and his own words were completely out of whack. I was reminded of this level of hypocrisy when I saw this movie. But then I always know when someone else's hypocrisy burns into my heart, into my own soul, it's only because they remind me of some aspect of myself. And so I looked a little deeper. And of course I remembered my own life. And I said, I'm not so clean here either. See, before I got sober... I counseled people into recovery. I counseled people who were in recovery. I went and I counseled people in jail. I went and I counseled people in rehab. I was even asked to be on the board of an organization that served homeless addicts. All the while when I was still an active alcoholic. I wasn't trying intentionally to be a hypocrite. But certainly, if you saw the me outside my professional life, you would have been just in making that judgment. Really what I was doing and why I couldn't make progress and didn't make progress until I got sober was that I was living too small a truth. My own version of it. The quickest way I can give you an impression of what that too small truth was, the clash. Lost in the supermarket from London Calling, one of the greatest, greatest albums ever made. And the line that I heard was as a teenager, and it justified in my own mind about what alcohol did for me. Mick Jones sings, I empty a bottle, I feel a bit free. That was my spiritual and emotional dogmatism. It was the association that I could only get free from the burden of being myself through the chains of alcohol. Living too small a truth is always a form of despair. And it also is a violation of our religious tradition at its best. When people ask me, and I've told some of you this before, to explain the core, not just the famous Unitarian Universalist argument and not just telling them what happens at 25 Beacon Street where the denomination is located, but to really break it down, break it down into what animates the center of Unitarian Universalism, I quote from Emerson, four little words, God speaketh, not spake. The divine, the holy, the sacred is not past tense. What Emerson is also saying there is that this universe, for as difficult as it is sometimes for all of us, is a place of abundant wisdom. Not past tense, not in the rearview mirror, but here and now as alive right now in our time as in any other. 
And it's not like Arlen Faber might have thought in the movie that we could just a long time ago be issued a strong line of enlightenment credit and we can just spend the rest of our lives drawing upon it. We need to restock, resave, reshare every single day to be aligned with what Emerson was talking about and hear the voice of the holy sounding as clearly in our lives as in any other. Now, this is not easy. Perhaps it is easier to be told. Perhaps it is easier sometimes to forget that we are responsible and free. But this truth is also liberating. It is what I believe the Buddha meant in his final sermon, his final benediction to those who had followed him, when he said, Be ye lamps unto yourselves. Be ye lamps unto yourselves. Now, there's a misunderstanding too often in the West as well, too, is that Buddha was preaching an individualistic religion, such as if you remember the very, very funny movie, A Fish Called Wanda, and Wanda is trying to disabuse the idiotic Otto, who has pretensions to enlightenment, when she says the central message of Buddhism is not every man for himself. This is not an individualistic edict. Rather, what the Buddha was saying is this. Be lamps unto yourselves, because you must, all of us, must be wary of just hearing what is wisdom and not practicing or not integrating it into our lives. It is easy to hear. It is easy to tell someone something. It is even easier to be told. But Buddha and all great spiritual teachers, they encourage us, just don't listen, but apprehend and integrate and assimilate and live out that wisdom that you hear. And this brings to mind another great Buddhist instruction, and it sounds very, very odd when you hear it for the first time. If you meet the Buddha on the road, some of you know the end, what do you do? Kill him. If you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. Well, the reason behind this is very simple. Is that all of us have the temptation to get tripped up by religious nostalgia. To associate holiness with one historical figure or one historical era or one historical person. And so the Buddha and the Buddhists are telling us here, if you meet the Buddha as you think the Buddha will be, you have conjured a Buddha of your own imaginings. Who is not the real Buddha? Who is speaking, not just spake? Who is recognizing that it goes on here in our midst right now still and will not always conform to our preconceived notions? I think the most honest admission of this that I absolutely love are these words that some of you know from the Taoist tradition. The Tao that can be written is not the eternal Tao. If you can read it, it does not exhaust it. The minute you say it, you enter into the paradox of never capturing it fully. Now that will frustrate those of us who are thoroughly or only logically minded. But once we get past that, we recognize that there is liberation in this. There is freedom in the fact that the Tao or the word or the love, you know, fill in your blank there, 
that is spoken is never the eternal or final version of it. There is humility and freedom in this. None of us gets the final word. None of us gets to speak the final truth. None of us, hopefully, fall into that trap, and this is the best example I know of it, of George Costanza, who wanted to end the meeting saying, thank you, good night, and walk out after he had gotten the final word. That is a form of egotism, and it is a temptation. Rather, we are liberated instead not to speak and not to tell the final or best word, but to speak, and even better, to live the best words and the best life that we know. It is one of the reasons that one of our core values here at Wellsprings is about spiritual practice. Because it is so easy to just take in information and take in information and take in information, to hear and then perhaps to tell. But it is with the day-in, day-out practice and formation of our lives, which is to say the formation of our character, that we truly do change and become something virtuous, good, holy, and that this emerges always when we practice. At the end of the movie, Arlen finally comes clean about me and God, and we recognize it's not quite the pure revelation that the myth about the book would have us believe. But because he finally admits where the book has come from, it doesn't make it wrong. It just makes it honest. And he moves finally from being merely a provider of content. It is easy in some ways to be a provider of content, to tell. It's like that old joke about if you put a thousand monkeys at a thousand typewriters for a thousand hours and just got them clack, clack, clacking away, that they would write the great American novel. Simpsons had a good joke on this once when Mr. Burns, who has the money to kind of organize a thousand monkeys with a thousand typewriters for a thousand hours, he finally realizes the monkeys have gotten there and he has his great novel and he reads what the monkeys had written. It is the best of times. It was the worst of times. You stupid monkey. Content is easier than presence. Telling is easier than character. But the content and the story and the stories, they will come and go. But when you think about those who inspired your life, even if their circumstances even if the details of their lives were quite different than yours, the bridge between them and you is a very simple thing. Kindness, compassion, patience, love, these things that we call character, that we call virtue. And it is this way of living that we are dedicated here at Wellsprings, knowing, knowing that the content will change, but the character of each and every one of our lives, with discipline, with attentive listening, and then finally with the willingness to commit, to commit to the practice of a life that will never have the final word. 
but can speak good words, can be a loving presence. This is who we are invited to be. We will have some answers. We won't have the answer, and that's a good thing. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God that speaketh and not spake, divine unfolding holy presence. Let us, just as we practice week after week, in our breathing, be here now. Living not in the nostalgia for what was or in the anxious expectation of what will be, but recognize here in this moment truly is connected to all the time that was and is unfolding. Let us recognize that any awakening that will be begins now, begins here. And so my prayer this day is for all of you. Wherever you are this morning in hurt or in pain, in question, in sadness, in joy, may you recognize that in each and all ways of being there is still the call of the Spirit. And may each and every one of you and each and every one of us come to see the wisdom that is here right now, right here as close to us as our own beating heart and our own breathing breath. That this wisdom, it is inviting us to awaken. Amen.